Hey, ladies and gentlemen, you're listening to the Vialucci Podcast. Honest, uncensored, and unedited discussions about life and everything in it. So sit back, relax, and let's start the show. So, good leader always leads from the front, Charles. And I at last. Can somebody fill that up with water? <laughs> yeah. That's a good idea. It's not too bad. That's about the only thing that's useful for you. Hey. Oh, well, oh, we're live. live. Okay. Hi. Hey, hey, everyone. Good evening. So, it was funny offline because I'm, I'm online. Here's um, Johnny. <laughs> Um, uh, discombobulate now. What, what was they talking about? Oh, well, we might just get on Movies. With the show. <laughs> so, John Higgins, you're back. I am, yes. How, how are you doing? I'm very well, thank uh, you. This is what been building up to this show for Yeah, ages. it's um, this actually, this is probably my most. Um, Close to that. This is actually my most. I'm really excited about this one because horror has been my genre yeah. since I was a teenager. I mean, even from a kid, really. So, I'm. What I've got tonight is my top 10 and the list of honorable mentions because. As I'm sure you probably gather, horror films are very divisive and very opinionated about their choices. So if you have major discussions with people, there are debates about, well, I don't think, I didn't think much of that film. And I, why did you pick that one? And I actually quite like that one. Has horror ever won an Oscar? Or is it like science fiction never gets taken seriously? Well, Get Out. I didn't see that. Didn't get Oscar, Out, the Jordan it? Peele film won. Yeah. Um, it was on TV the other day. Yeah, but it won, it, it was significant. Was that the one with the Blackfell and yeah, the Yeah, it was a bit like yeah. the Stepford Wives. I mean, it's it's actually it's, a pretty good movie, but it, it's really Jordan Peele who's done really well with Us. I mean, I saw Us recently, and that's an even better movie. Oh, really? I didn't see Us. What um, did it win uh, the Oscar for? Best Screenplay. Yeah. And I think Jordan Peele might have, I think he won Best Director. So to somebody who doesn't know about it, what's the difference between Best Film and Best Screenplay? Like, What's the difference, what Screenplay specifically mean? Well, Screenplay is your is the script. So it's the most... That's the film. That's, no, the screenplay is the template from which the film is made. So that's That shouldn't what, be in the Oscars, though, should it? That's a book. It is. No, yeah. So you have, in, in the Oscars, you have best film, you have best foreign language But isn't film. that quite disrespectful, then, if you, the guy wins screenplay, but you fail to get the Oscar for the film? Happens all the time. That's the, best director so doesn't always win best film. That, yeah, you know, I think that would be a bit of a correlate. slap in the face. You know, Which is strange. I mean, if, if you, but if you take something like... Um, well, best, the best film must be best director then. Yeah, ideally, yeah. It and, well, and maybe have a best well, if, performance. If you take it? 1974, Robert Town won the screenplay. Robert Town won the award for best screenplay for Chinatown, which is consistently regarded as the best American screenplay of the last 30 years. It's, it's is a that ten- one with Kurt Russell in the spinning hands? No, no, that's... Um, what the thing is <laughs> Chinatown? That's big trouble in Little China. This is yeah. um, Jack oh, Nicholson God. as Jake Gittes, and it's a crime thriller from the thirties. It's set against the backdrop of a water shortage, and it's got John Huston and Faye Dunaway. So this Get Out, and did that? Was that a good film? It's a great. It's a good film. I mean, it, it it did really really well. I think people liked it. I mean, I didn't because I. Because I'm so versed in horror anyway, it yeah. reminded me a bit of Stepford Wives. And I think oh, you, which is, and the yeah. key thing is, is there's a lot of stuff out there. A lot of the stuff in the modern horror landscape is actually modeled on past glories. So people like Eli Roth, for example, and Adam Green have modeled their films on the films of the 80s, you know, Stalk and Slash films, which I grew up watching as a teenager. Right. Um, but with things like the Fright Fest, which has just celebrated its 20th anniversary, you get a good sense of what the films are. You know, there's you know there's films from all over the world, and they've really put together a great program of things. And the great thing is you get a chance to meet some of the talents. So in the case of the last two or three years, there's 
two names that I must mention. One of them is Curtis David Harder, who has done some really great ones. He did a movie called Spiral and Harpoon and What Keeps You Alive, which is one of the films from last year, which is about this lesbian relationship that goes into the woods in, in the lake. <laughs> And it's like Les- lesbian relationship goes into the woods. No, but it's it's set to get it's set to, these two. This lesbian couple go to a um go to a lake to right to discuss to their lesbian. relationship, oh, and then okay. basically something happens. It's got a really some delicious twists. Um, and then Jem Wexler, who is this female director, did a film called The Ranger, in which a, there's a psychotic ranger going after people, um, in the woods. You know, so again, a lot of it is modelled on past glories but you know that there's some interesting films coming out of um go the country like argentina had a great one called ghost killers and there was a um there was a this film i'm trying to remember what it was but it was about some of these students who were like ghost hunters and they go to a school which is allegedly haunted and they get get stalked by this specter who sort of unleashes power and sort of causes almost goes after him and kills him in this in this school so um there's a lot i mean it, the genre sort of covers a lot of um various ideas and it's very very healthy i think the fan base is great and i yeah. mean with films like get out that's really providing the um is that a british film no it's american oh. and i mean the british race, actor um right. oh daniel yeah kalulua i think kaluya i'm assuming that's the black fella I, yeah, yeah i think he's english yeah. but um it had um but it also had Catherine Keener in it as the um, she's like the matriarch, and she has a thing with the cup she uses, you know, uses to hypnotize people. Okay. Um, Have you seen it, Charles? Yeah. What, what would you think about it? Um, I thought it was uh, a very well-made film. Scary. Uh, or not? Um, it was. It was interesting. It was. It has the feel of something like an Outer Limits episode or Twilight. Yeah. Oh, there's a twisty um, thing. Is to that it? they go to this place and something's a bit off, okay. and he's like, oh, "Something's a bit off here," and then he investigates and then reveals a oh. strange, well, let, weird, well, let's see a weird if it conspiracy makes it into thing. John's so. top ten. So okay, so. The criteria for this is just going back. I've picked 10 films, which for me are the most memorable and the most influential. And they're also the ones that I can distinctly remember watching the first time around where they literally scared this They scared me in some shape or form. So we're going to go straight into it because I've got a lot of honorable mentions, but the top 10 goes like this at number 10. Cannibal Holocaust, 1980. What? So I never saw this. So is this one of the, what they banned? What? It was what, it was one of the original video nasties. It, yeah. And yeah. it's the only one that today, even in any kind of truncated form, is still worthy of the video nasty status because it is a genuinely horrible, nasty film. Even really? for horror fans with strong stomachs, really? it is very, very strong. Can you get it now? You can. You can get it in a fa- in an animal friendly version. That, because <laughs> basi- that, no, because basically that? the original version featured a lot of real oh, life animal god. cruelty. So they, for yeah. example, the most the most infamous scene is a turtle getting killed. Oh god! Have and I there's like no. muskrats and stuff. And it and then, um, but it it kind of sort of briefly appeared in VHS form in some version in the late early eighties. But then because of the DPP list and the VRA, it wasn't given a certificate. No, it was, it was just, it was genuinely a controversial form. I mean, even Ruggiero Diodato, who was the director, he actually appeared in court in Italy because they genuinely thought it was some of the real, they felt some of the killings were maybe too real. Right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, so the basis of this story is, is a camera crew goes off to South American jungle to film a documentary called, the last road to hell 
and they disappear. So a second team goes off to the jungle and all they find are the film cans. Right. So the film cans are brought so back to... It's a found footage film. Fa- it's a found... So I'll get to that One, in a one of the first. Yeah, it was actually... Films, yeah. If you want to talk about it, it's actually the most influential found footage right. film. So everything from Cloverfield to Wrecked, Quarantine yeah, to yeah. the Blair Witch Project. People talk about the Blair Witch about being a pioneer. It wasn't. It was influenced by Cannibal Holocaust. So they bring this footage back and then they want to create a special called The Green Inferno, the, you know, showing this footage on a primetime slot. But the real-life footage proves to be incredibly brutal. And then, of course, you know, then they change their minds about it. Right. What's significant about it is if you look at all the footage we watch on YouTube and everything else today, it's a very clever film for that reason because of its controversial nature and because you don't leave it. You don't leave it feeling the same as you did when you came in it but starts out tame but i guarantee you by the end of it you're literally sort of i mean i was i was absolutely shell-shocked when i left how old were you when you saw it i saw it recently i saw it about you but, know, i mean the first time when you i didn't see it when it first came out oh, right. i knew of it so i mean shocked as an adult i was i was it. shocked at as an adult and the thing is it's got a very clever idea at the heart of it so i wouldn't i would defy anybody not to kind of be angry about it because it's very well made, and also the found footage in it actually is ca- is kind of chaotic, and you kind of the camera kind of moves here and there. And then if you look at the Blair Witch Project, for example, the very end of the film, it's yeah. like that same thing again. And even things like Aliens, for example, the scenes where they go into sub, you know, where you have the cameras, the, the head oh, cams. And today, for example, you know, it's you know body cams and YouTube footage, you know. You have happy slapping and stuff, and and I'm not saying this was influenced that, but the I, the concept of using the found footage concept is actually very potent. And it's, so, what is why is it on your list? Is it because of the cu- cultural impact? It's of just it? a genuinely horrible film, and I it's a genuinely <laughs> no. It's, well, that, that's it, what you want from a horror but film, it's, though, isn't but it? But that's yeah? what I'm saying. The is reason, it well made. It's a well made horror is there film. A story in there. It, that's the story. That's what I just said. It's. I just think it's... But, I mean, is it a good story? Or am I just watching horrific stuff? It's an interesting idea. And I think the way that... Because a lot of the video nasties from that time are actually very very poorly staged. You can tell that they're makeup effects. This this one, because of the technicalities of it, actually makes it more potent. So so it's well-made. It's a well-made movie, and I like it for that reason. Okay, so that was number 10. Now, number 9 is Richard Donner's original 1976 version of The Omen. The original, the original Omen from 1976. So I haven't seen this. That, no, is this the one where the thing falls off the church? Yeah, it's the, where the, the where kids the, on the bike. They're the spi- Yeah, the kids on the bike yeah. and he falls down. <laughs> I've got nothing else. Um, <laughs> but it's it's actually the pioneer film for the creative death. Now I first saw this right. um, the day before I went back to second year secondary school. On the, it was like September 1981. And I just remember it was one of those films I was allowed, I, I wanted to stay up and watch it. Have you seen it, Charles? Uh, yeah, a long time ago. Um, well, so give us the storyline, basically. So the basic story is is um, Gregory Peck and Lee Remick play Catherine, Robert and Catherine Fawn, and Robert Fawn's just been appointed ambassador to Great Britain. But his wife, oh, his, his wife, his wife has um, just miscarried, and this priest offers him a baby who was born at the same time. 
So nothing unusual about that. The problem is, is the baby just happens to be the devil. Right, okay. And he, does the priest know? The priest knows, but there's no, the whole thing is. So what happens is, is on his fifth birthday, they have a party and the nanny hangs himself, herself. And then this replacement, um, this replacement nanny played by Billy Whitelaw called Mrs. Baylock turns up and it turns out that he, she's the guardian of the devil because she's trying to sort of nurture him through. Right, okay. Yeah, so yeah, essentially yeah. what it is, they want to protect the devil kid. So why does she kill herself if she's protecting the baby? Well, she she doesn't kill herself. She She's actually protecting the kid. So she, yeah, she, so why would she, would she be killed? Well, she... Well, that's later on in the okay, film. Right, okay. Sorry, spoiler, spoiler alert. Yeah. If but, you haven't seen it since the seventies, yeah. mate, it's probably yeah, not. Yeah, I think, I think but we'll the thing is, it, there yeah. there are there are about two or three sequences in it that really stand out. First, what the the one that I love the most is actually the scene in the safari park with the baboons. Oh, well, what happens? And then? basically, um, Kathy Fawn and Damien go off to the safari park, and they're actually driving through the the baboon set yeah, enclosure. Yeah. And the baboons suddenly go wild. Right. And the story goes that they couldn't get the baboons to react the same way they should have done. So what the animal handler did was he said, place one of the baboons in the car with Lee Remick and Darby Stevens. Right. So basically that changes. So when you watch it, it's this, it's so cleverly edited by Stuart Baird. It's like, it just, they all leap out and it's quite a scary sequence because it's so intensely and it's based on reaction. So the editing actually does that really well. And then the most famous thing, they put, they put the, they put to sort of create the proper reaction of the baboons going doolally because it's the kids in the car. They put a baboon in the car itself, in the car car with it. So because, if they saw that the car would, the baboon was in the car, they would sort of react badly because they. Oh, the outside one. Yeah. You're not filming the inside yeah, yeah. baboon. So the monkeys get jealous oh, because yeah, they see yeah. another monkey yeah. in the car. So that that was that. That was the other great scene. But then there's the um, and then of course there's the decapitation sequence with David Warner, which the with the with the glass, the vert, the horizontal yeah. glass, oh, which yeah, was yeah, yeah. Um, again was a wonderful um, edited sequence because the way. According to the documentary, Richard Donner said, look, what you do is you try and people are looking, they look away. They're looking, they look away. And then they just turn just as the decapitation's happening. It's still happening. So they cleverly edited that way to make the impact. When will people look back? That's when we could decapitate. And what's also significant is indirectly because of its success, it actually helped 20th Century Fox to finance Star Wars. Because the year, it was released the year before Star Wars, and because of the amount of money it made, it was it was it made it was it cost about two point five million to make, but it made millions at the American box office. Right. So Fox, when they were deciding whether to take a chance on Star Wars, Alan Ladd Jr., who was the president of Fox at the moment at that time, he they took a chance on it. The, the Fox is in Fox News, Twentieth Century Fox. Oh, not Fox. Okay, right. So well, it that. is Fox News is Twentieth yeah. Century it's Fox. Really, it's the yeah. same company. Yeah, yeah same. Oh, bloody hell. Rupert Murdoch and all that. Oh God. Um. So it it was followed by two decent sequels, Damien Arm and Two, which made Damien as a teenager and he lives with Chicago, which in Chicago with his uncle and aunt, which is uh, William Holden and um Lee, and Lee Grant as Richard and Anne Thorne. And then there's, you know, there's a few great, the memorable one is they have a sequence in an elevator where somebody split in half by a wire that goes down the shaft. Oh, Jesus. And there's a drowning by, um, and there's a really shocking drowning in the ice and stuff. Um, And there's a sequence where a reporter is on an open road and this um, 
this raven sort of attacks her and blinds her and then she gets hit by a truck so um is that two that's two and then the oh. final conflict is where um sam neil in one of his early roles he plays damien thorne and then he he becomes ambassador to great britain again oh. but he's after the presidency right and it's but great. he's the devil he's he's still the, the devil and then and then there's kind of like a subplot involving killing every kid born on a certain time you right. know which is quite um which is it's pretty good and um vic armstrong was one of the stump people on it and he did there's a few sequences he was involved with that so right so that's eight number eight that's the number, number nine. nine now number eight um is the original version of the evil dead right original this is version. the first one the very original one okay. from 1980 i always get confused between the evil dead original one and aren't they similar or something like that? Well, there is. T- I mean, there's Evil Dead. I'm not watching. I'm always getting confused. There's the Evil Dead. There's Evil Dead Two, which is effectively a comedy remake yeah. of the of the. And then there's Army of Darkness, which is the yeah. No, so that, which is even that's more the second oh, that's, one. That's the that's the medieval one. So it was yeah. a remake. That's why I'm getting confused. Uh, the second one is effectively a sort of. But it's actually, but it works remake. just as well anyway. They because they. It's. I mean, the first one had comic elements, but the the second one's even funnier because of the possessed hand. There's a scene. And where, what did they do then? Yeah. So they they just re they copied, but they thought, what it made a load of money. Let's do it again. Or uh, was it a different film? Well, well, the original Evil Dead actually was bigger in Europe than it was in America. Same people. Same people. So Sam Raimi, when they when they made when it was released originally in 1980. Three. It was actually one of Palace Pictures' first ever releases. Right. Okay. And. At the at the time of it was originally going to be released in November 1982, and they reviewed it, and everybody said this is brilliant, this is great. I mean, Stephen King described it as the most ferociously original horror film of the year, so he got an element. But to tie in with um, the release, they actually delayed it by about three months to time with a release in February of 1983. It said House Records of the Prince Charles. It was the most watched VHS title in 1983. There was another video nasty as well, wasn't it? So it was. It was controversial, but it it it, it was released, I think. But they edited. They, yeah, they, they, they it was cut for the cinema, but um, it and I mean, I I remember watching the uh, when I first saw it. I I remember watching it on um, early nineteen eighty three because it was very hard to get hold of a VHS copy because every single library around where I lived, um, you looked around and then we found when we got, we looked at the bottom of our row, we had a garage, which had video cassettes and it was there. So we got it there, (laughs) but it was, um, it, it defined for me that, that a great period in my life. Cause I, I watched between 1982 and 84, I was really an avid VHS viewer and horror films were part of that thing. So there's other ones on there, but it was just, um, just a wonderfully silly, wonderfully funny haunted house fantasy. Um, basically, the story is five youths go off to a um, cabin in the Tennessee backwoods, and they discover that's a ta- not been done since. They discover <laughs> a, they discover a tape recorder which has been this professor has been using it yeah, to sort of that, summon the, the evil spirits. And then basically, um, one of the guys, Ash Bruce Campbell, plays it again, and then they recite it, and then all of a sudden the demons come and happen and they get taken down one by one and it's just it, it's it's quite intense in the gore but it's just very very funny at the same time so it, as a comedy horror it's just intense and the way that the you know he goes like somebody one of the zombie people who've turned actually gets his gets her head partly in the front he goes oh thank you 
I wouldn't have known what I would have done if you hadn't pulled me away from those hot coals. And then she stabs him in the, um, <laughs> she stabs him. But it's just like. Um, Was there many other films that cross the genres like that with a horror comedy sort of thing? Oh, that, plenty. I mean, yeah. there's things like, I mean, you know, a lot, a lot of the key horror films in the 80s that were successful actually used elements of humour in there. Like what? Give me another one. Um, well, I'll talk about okay. some of those. Because oh, okay. the, the point is a lot of the movies in my top 10 are actually using that humour oh, okay. in a big way anyway. So that was my number eight. Now, number seven is Poltergeist, the original, the original 1982 yeah. <laughs> version, which again, um, I think probably prompted more nightmares about clowns long before it did. Yeah. I mean, I feel that the clown in Poltergeist still freaks me out today. The, Are uh, you going with it as a Steven Spielberg film? No, no, who was the... the, the Toby co- Hooper. Or, and, but who was he being directed by? Well, like, there was a thing, a Well, yeah, the, the whole controversy was, was that Spielberg was the producer of the film right. and Toby Hooper was the name director yeah. on there. But... There was a rumor going around at the time that because Spielberg was actually on the set a lot of the time, yeah, well, he was producer. It looks like a Spielberg. Early but they film. said, but they said also, but also it's his story because he he wrote the story. Yeah, um, it's got to be. And Spielberg yeah. produced it with Frank Marshall, and it's it's kind of it's it's one of those that I think. Um, I think if Hooper had handled it a bit more, he, there would have been yeah. a lot more of it. But it's still a very wonderfully dark tale. I mean, I mean, it has that kitchen scene with the chairs that freaks me yeah. out. I love that scene where the chairs, you know, the chairs are, are around the table, and then all of a sudden they, they go down and oh, then it stacks yeah. up. Um, there's the um, there's the scene where you know one Oliver Robbins, the kid, he picks up the fork and it's actually bent out of shape like Yuri Geller. It's just <laughs> totally freak out. Um, but there's the um, you know the the kind of the whole, um, you know, the TV sequence and, you know, technical effects. It's wonderful visual effects by Industrial Light and Magic, um, which won the visual effects in 1982. Um, the Jerry Goldsmith score is fantastic. Um, and I saw it in 70 mil. They had a 70 mil print at the Prince Charles. And again, it's just fantastic. I mean, great cast, Joe Beth Williams. Um, I also like the... Um, I also like Zelda Rubinstein's. There's a wonderful exchange between Zelda Rubinstein and Craig T. Nelson, where Craig T. Nelson is standing. Who's she? The little, she's the little media. The little lady, yeah. And he said, and he, she's, he's standing there like that, and he's going, and Joe Biffins goes, "What are you doing? What are you doing?" He goes, "I'm communicating with her." And then you hear up and says, "Yes, I, I hear you. I just don't like trick answers." <laughs> <laughs> so um so yeah so that's my number set that's the other one but did I, Poltergeist win any awards then what was it, it won, the sound it won the best sound and best visual effects okay, okay so it's good um I tried to watch the remake uh recently. didn't even bother mate what, what do you think of it terrible like did terrible. they copy the film like was this the, well, the storyline it was just too slick and they had I, I think they missed it's one of those that did it I feel did. like a family like it had that because that Poltergeist had that it, it was did. just great. I mean, it, it had a, you know, it, it also was, um, I think it was quite haunting because Heather O'Rourke, the kid who played Carol Ann, she died after shooting Poltergeist 3. I think she died of some rare disease. Heart thing. Heart thing, which is quite shocking. So, and I mean, going back to the Omen, that film had um, a lot of um, haunting deaths. So, for example, there was a plane that actually took off Hawker Sidley, which um, the producers had hired. And the the airline said, you know, if, if you give us this plane now, we'll give you a discount the next day. Anyway, a bunch of Japanese businessmen got into the plane. It took off, hit a flight of birds, and then crashed. 
So if it, so it and then Greg apparently in, there's a documentary online, The Curse of the Almond, and Gregory Peck's son died shortly before the um, the film was released and was yeah. made. So it's quite shocking in that way. Um, anyway, on to number six, and it is um, for my money one of the all time great Stephen King adaptations. And again, it's from 1976, and it's Carrie, the original yeah, Carrie. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, again, I think this demonstrates why some of the physical effects of the horror genre of the 70s and 80s worked a lot better than some of the CGI effects. I yeah. mean, the Kimberly um, Pierce remake with Chloe Grace Moretz was a little too slick and reliant on CGI. Um, it's had Portia Doubleday as the evil thing, who's the, who's the, who's the daughter of the late Frank Doubleday, who played, um, he was Carpenter's writer, man. He played the, you know, the one in Escape from New York. And he was also the um, the... the gang member who shot the kid in a saw precinct 13 oh okay yeah yeah um it's it actually works better than the novel because they 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 structured it in such a way but it features um it features i mean the prom sequence for me is such a shocking yeah, yeah. moment um it's got a great cast i mean with william katz john travolta pippa Laurie. Amy Irvin. I forgot John Travolta was in there. Yeah, yeah, he played Billy Nolan, who's um, and then there's of course Sissy Spacek, who I think invested yeah. the naive. The, I thought she worked a lot. She she made that role a lot more memorable than Chloe Grace Moretz because, with respect to Chloe Grace Moretz, she should have been. I think she comes along after Kickass. She's playing the waifish character. I didn't feel she was the oh, right person yeah. for the role of Carrie White. Because Sissy Spacek had that transition. She plays the, yeah. when you see her at the beginning, she, you see elements of the ESP, but when she goes into the thing and then you see her eyes widening and she's that whole final sequence. It, it, yeah, she totally sells it, doesn't yeah. she? Because it really comes down yeah. to the performance yeah. in the end and she absolutely nails it. Yeah. You but totally of course, believe it. Yeah. You know? And then, of course, there's that incredible shock ending, which I'm not going to reveal, but it, it literally, we... To give you a testament to its power, we watched the film at about four o'clock in the afternoon. And it's about four, five forty-five, and you know, the lights you can see the daylight in there. And we're sitting there in our, our living room like that. And we literally freaked out. We jumped and then we enjoyed we were scared so much we watched it a second time. <laughs> so it was like we watched yeah. the tape again. But it again, it's um I think in terms of the King adaptations, I think it's one of the most masterful ones. And it was, of course, his second novel. Was it that film that was where the wife, he'd thrown it in the bin and the wife had yes. taken it? it was that film? Yeah, he, um, well, Stephen King had written it. If you read one of the introductions, so the story goes, Stephen King had been writing this thing and Tabitha said, um, his wife, his wife, he, he shoved it in the bin and, and then she took it out, brushed off the cigarette ash and something and said, look, you've got to carry on writing this. So he actually did it as yeah. um, as um, in as a favor to his wife. He said right. he loved it so much. So that was um, yeah. So it, it's it's memorable for um, I mean the locker room sequence at the beginning in the high speed camera where all the women are in um, you know it's quite it's real sexual fantasy and stuff. And then there's the sequence where you know Carrie has her first period, and then yeah. that's that quite you know it, it sort of encapsulates the essence of real bad bullying yeah. and torture. Well, that's what he said the wife liked about it. She, he's actually picked up on something there. Well, according to King's introduction, he said it was based on two freaky kids at school. He said it was based on, um, so he says, he said that he modeled it on a couple of kids that he, he actually 
um, didn't. Charles, do you want to take that off? <laughs> Sorry to annoy you. Um, no, no, I'll keep it. Okay. I'll keep it. <laughs> it's all good. So um, that's my number six. Um, and now number five, I'm going to be going for the very first and original Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Oh, so a lot of originals. You're, you're, yeah. You've been because uh, because again, and, and another video nasty. Too. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, I mean, what's significant about this film is that I've actually seen it in every format. I've seen it on Super 8, 16 millimeter. VHS, 35, DVD, And what's Blu-ray. the best? Um, I think they're all good. I mean, the 4K, I had the pleasure 4K, of meeting, yeah. I had the f- pleasure of meeting Toby Hooper. Who's oh. who? Um, he's the director of the film. Okay. He, he, was, oh, yeah. he was the total film icon at the Fright Fest in 2010. So they had a special screening of Texas Chainsaw Massacre and, um, and also Eggshells, his first film, which was this kind of weird... Um, it was a weird kind of post-war Vietnam thing, but it was a fr- it was an experimental film which nobody could understand. <laughs> became out, but they did a the great thing with the remastered Texas Chainsaw Massacre. They really did a good job of heightening some of the you know they they this is one of the virtues of good digital. It's um it really heightened some of the imagery, so you could actually see the silhouette of the house. You know, you can see the dark. Right. So they did. It was it felt like it was watching. Um, you were watching it for the first time. But again, I first saw this um, when I was about 11 years old. So what, when, year, what year did it come out? It came out in 1974. Oh, the 70s were for horror, mate. Yeah. They? All these, yeah. So, um, yeah. So basically, it's, in a nutshell, the story is this. Um, five youths. Here we go again. <laughs> yeah. Five, five youths. <laughs> there's, te- there's damn teens in the yeah. woods again. Five, yeah. five youths decide to go and visit. There's... <laughs> There's grave robbing in Texas, and five years go to go and visit this graveyard where they to just to make sure the actual grave's okay. Oh, okay. So well, they stop okay. off at a gas station, yeah, and nice. on the way they pick up a hitchhiker who proceeds to cut his um, cut his hands and stuff, and then they break down and visit. They visit an old house. But then two of them take a detour and end up outside this other house where they meet the cannibal family, right. which is, includes Leatherface, who is this um, thing. And then he has a chainsaw and he cuts up one of them, but it's all masked. It's based on the real-life exploits of Ed Gein, who, was, who inspired Robber Block's Psycho. And the way it was done, they, they kind of did it in a semi-documentary, so... In the film, there's a roll-up, and it says allegedly these events took place on August the 18th, right. 1973. It's all fake. It's all kind of, it, you know, essentially a lot of the story is based on it, the horrible Wisconsin right. mass murderer. Oh, really? Thing. Okay. Um, the joke goes, apparently, um, in 1972, in Christmas, um, Toby Hooper was trapped in a hardware store, and he came across a row of chainsaws, and he said... I, the only way I'm going to get out of this is if I take one of those chainsaws and cut my way through. So an idea came out of that, right. and then he he took that idea, and then the again idea, combined it to make chainsaw. Oh. I had heard, I don't know, if, it's somewhere the, the scene where they're at the, 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 the sat down for a meal. Yeah. yeah, and that scene there where they sat down for the meal, the actors were like ready to quit, so they had to sort of film it in one day because there was a sewage place near. Yeah. Because it was incredible heat. It was incredible heat. Yeah. I mean, the the actual original opening in one, so the story goes, is they had a lot of rotting cattle. And they that were, was it, yeah. They were going to put them on the, on the road um, to the signifiers. Um, but the problem was with all the stench from everything, because they were really 
up against the elements. It was incredibly hot. I mean, Texas is an incredibly yeah. hot place in the thing. And then, um, you know, there, there, there was, I mean, the other story was that Bryanston, who were the original production company, was actually run by the mafia. Okay. So there's, so, and so the legend goes is that none of the actors ever saw any profits, even though it made over a hundred right, million. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and apparently, so the story goes, and though it's unsubstantiated, the mafia were responsible for it. Um, it spawned um, a really great sequel, Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2. Again, another example of a comedy sequel on a... But it's actually, really? re- but it's actually really good. It's, um, it has a great opening. I mean, and it, it kind of taps into whole yuppie stuff of the 80s. And, um, and you've got um, Dennis Hopper as this, who's out for revenge for Sally and, Le- and Franklin, two of the original um, yeah. members. Dennis Hopper with two chainsaws. Yes. Because it's a sequel. You have, so to, he's the you have to go... You have to go up. But it, it also has some wonderful... I mean, Leatherface is back even better than he is, but also it's got Chop Top, who's wearing a Sonny Bono wig. But there's... Um, if you ever get a chance, go and what go and get hold of the um, limited edition three disc set, which has the booklet and also has the some of the deleted scenes. So there's a scene in a underpass and stuff. But it's got a booklet on the film. It's got um, it's got eggshells that short on one of the other discs oh. as well, um, and it it was part of a three picture deal with Canon, which um, Toby Hooper had. He also did Life Force, oh, yes. which was a um, which has become such a cool thing. When which vampires come from space and sort of obliterate oh, yeah. London, space vampires. Yeah, is Canon still going? No, no. Um, when it, out by went well, it went into bankruptcy in the nineties. And then there was, of course, another one. There was a rarely seen remake of Invaders from Mars, which was a 1950s film, yeah. which I've seen, I've, I have seen, and it's okay, but it doesn't hold a candle to the original. Okay, so, it just it didn't really do anything more, really, didn't it? It didn't really. Well, it, it didn't need to be because it wasn't didn't expand it. I well, felt. it was the problem was is um, I think the Canon Group were very Menachem Golding and Yoram Globus were very kind of particular on cutting corners, so they're. I think uh, the original vision of Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2 was a much broader vision and much more broad comic. But then I think what happened was um, Menachem Golan wanted the gore and they wanted it to be a standard exploitation horror film. Um, and L.M. Kit Carson, who was the writer on it, who did Paris, Texas, for example, he had written this, what turned out to be a really interesting comment on 80s in much the same way that the 70s was about Vietnam and everything else. I think I think the thing about the horror films of the 70s is when they first came out, people weren't talking about the subtext. They were only tapping into the gore and the horror. Yeah. You know, whereas today, audiences are a lot more savvy. I think today, audiences do see the films for what they are. You know, with if you take the Romero films, for example, Night of the Living Dead and Dawn of the Dead and Day of the Dead, they all kind of had a thematic thing about the social culture and the, the, the disintegration of, you know, of the world and stuff. It was always about the end of the world. And this is what, I think a lot of the themes in those movies do tend to focus on, but the horror tends to get in the way of the social. But was the seventies also lucky for the directors it produced? It was just luck. There was some, well, I, I think like anything, I think a lot of the filmmakers came out of film school. I mean, Toby Hooper and um, John Carpenter and Wes Craven, for yeah. example. Well, Wes Craven was actually part of that. Um, well, Wes Craven was part of the underground 42nd Street films of the 70s, which will then lead me into my next one in a minute. Oh, okay. um, and I think we'll go on to that, which yep, is so. Friday the 13th. The so what are we on now? What um, Number four. Number four, Friday the 13th, yeah. So um, Sean Cunningham, 
um, did this movie, so the story goes. If you read the excellent Peter Brack book, Crystal Lake Memories, which is the definitive um, compendium, encyclopedia and compendium of the whole history of Friday the 13th, he created it because he wanted to pay some college bills and stuff. And he, he, he got a, he took out an ad in Variety saying the scariest film ever made Friday the 13th. And the phones were ringing off to hook because he didn't have a movie, but he, oh, he wanted right. to conceive it. So when did it, did it come out on Halloween? No, it came out in 1980. No, I mean the month when did, would it have come out on, on it Halloween? Out, it came out in May of 1980. Oh, okay. Um, but again, it's um, he actually that Victor Miller, who was the writer, was told by Sean Cunningham, "Go and watch Halloween." And then they did a thing like go to a, pick an isolated summer camp, and then they they got Tom Savini on board to do some of the effects. The way that Sean Cunningham described it was like a magic show. You know, you try and fool the audience into thinking of it, right, and I yeah, think he yeah. did it really well. That's a good idea. Um, again, yeah. simple story. Um, camp in 1958. Um, couple of um, camp counselors are killed by a mysterious assailant. Um, the, the, pla- the place is plagued by closures and, and jinxes. And then in 1980, a guy called Steve Christie decides to open it. But there's a weirdo called Crazy Ralph saying, You're all doomed. You're all doomed. You're going to camp blood, ain't you? It's called a death curse. <laughs> and, then it, and then basically people start disappearing one by one. <laughs> Um, it's played by a lot. I mean, Kevin Bacon is one of the actors in the um, is he really? in yeah. the film long before he did phone ads. But he also forms the <laughs> basis of one of the most memorable killings, where there's an arrow that comes through the bed, through the inside, so oh, yeah. um, through the actual neck, which oh. is really good. And that was, of course, courtesy of um, courtesy of Tom Savini, who had just come off Dawn of the Dead at the time. Oh. And it spawned great sequels. I mean, Friday the Thirteenth Part Three is worth watching in 3D. <laughs> um and i've seen it in 3d and it's just it's just brilliant i mean the 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 effects are really iffy now but it works really really well L- lots of people passing things here have this uh yeah. have this pack of crisps but the actual here, but, gl- you know like, like a joint through there's a joint that gets passed through there but there's i mean the most memorable scene is when jason crushes the skull but the thing is when you look at it now you can tell that it's a prosthetic head and the you know you see the the you know, it's been designed for the 3D, but you see the, the head going in like that. But you see this really awful, um, you know, the, you know, the eyeball is literally on a on a on a, <laughs> on a wire. And then there's a scene where a guy's doing a handstand and he's walking along there, and then all of a sudden, Jason just goes buff. But it's worth watching, even in 2D. It's a really great crowd pleaser and stuff. And Friday awards, any awards? Didn't win anything. No, I mean, really? Um, might have won some of the genre awards. Um, and then there's Friday the Thirteenth, the final chapter. How, how many are there? There's a few now, aren't there? Uh, right. So going through it, there's Friday the 13th, Part 2, Part 3D, Part 4, The Final Chapter, Part 5, A New Beginning, Part 6, Jason Lives, Part 7, The New Blood, Part 8, Jason Takes Manhattan, Part oh, 9, Manhattan. Um, um, there's uh, The Final Friday, and then Jason X. And then you have like the remake, which is Friday the 13th. There was a there was a remake in yeah, in two thousand and nine, which yeah. is I think I, in my head I've got some films confused. Halloween and Friday the Thirteenth. What's the one with Jamie Lee Curtis? Halloween. That's Halloween, yeah. And that's not Friday the Thirteenth. No, no. no. Okay. Right. Um, <laughs> okay. So, but but Friday the Thirteenth. Jason. Yeah, Jason. Yeah, Jason well, with the mask. Yeah, yeah. He, the, the well, hockey mask. I yeah. thought that was um, Jamie Lee Curtis. No, no, no. he has a uh, Captain uh, William Sh- Yeah, William Shatner Cap- mask, uh, mask painted white. Oh, fuck it. Yeah. All right. Okay, so that's number four. 
So we get into the top three, oh, and um, as I say, they, well, I'm I, I'm thinking that definitely two. John's going to come up with one begins with E and one begins with T. E T. Let's see. We'll see. Number three. Okay, so number three. Well, I did name this as my favourite fil- horror film of the 1980s, yeah, and it's on. it's a definite classic. And it's the thing. Yeah, there you go. There you go. The original. The the well, the remake, not the original. That was 1951. But this is the. Uh, oh right, yes, yeah, yeah, that's was, right. Yeah. So. Um, Again, this <laughs> I got slapped down there, and not, and not a good film. It's one of those fifties films. I, I, I haven't seen. It's, well, it's, 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 still, well, it, it's actually a. Um, I mean, the the original film is actually pretty good, but it's a different type of film. It doesn't capture because it's James Arnes who was Marshall Dillon and Gunsmouth, and he was a seven foot tall. That's right. They yeah. regard him as an alien carrot. <laughs> Um, I can't. They were in that shed. They're in huts or something. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I think. But he does have in. one of the yeah. all-time scares where they they go up to a door and he they open the door and he's literally standing behind it. Right. But um, John Carpenter actually says that it, it's it scared the hell out of him when he yeah. was um, when he was a kid. I mean, things like it it came from beyond came from outer space was another one when he saw that. Um, yeah, I I regard the thing as one of the most accomplished of the eighties. Um, it. It literally contains some of the best visual effects ever, physical effects ever, thanks to Rob Bottin. And it's a, it's a much more faithful... Who to, was he, as, uh, special effects-wise, at that time? Because they were good for that time. Had he been like a long-established... Well, long well, Rob Bottin had just done a film, which I will be... In, he did a film just before then called The Howling. Oh, yeah. Which is yeah, werewolf yeah. film. Oh, so again, yeah. so him and Rick Baker and Stan Winston. Stan Winston actually has... Um, has a brief credit on um, the thing. He did some of the work on the thing, but he he didn't he didn't want to take anything away Why? from. Well, ultimately, it was Rob Bottin's show. I mean, if you watch the Terror Take Shape documentary on the thing DVD, Stan Winston openly admits he said, "Look, I'm happy to have done some work, but it's I was just being it's kind. Rob Bottin's show." Right, okay. So he'd um, he'd done a lot of these really interesting effects because. The original John W. Campbell book, Who That Goes Where, is about a th- about an alien organism that takes on the physical appearance of its victims. So the idea was he John Carpenter went back to the original source material, and it was written and adapted by Bill Lancaster, who was Burt Lancaster's son. Oh, oh right. So it had been going on for a while, and then so the story goes: when the fur film first came out, it was literally a disaster because it came out two weeks after ET. Right, yeah. And then, but funnily enough, as time gone has gone on with like Blade Runner, along with Blade Runner, the thing in the Blade and Blade Runner are actually two of the films that actually surpassed it. Whereas ET, although it made a lot of money, has not regarded itself as not, has not been as memorable, even though it won Oscars at the time. Um, but I, I think it's a very interesting claustrophobic film, very accomplished. I like the, you know, it's an intriguing thing. I mean, the dog and the spider thing, that dog around. should have won an Oscar. Yeah. Because I was, even now if I watch it, I go, that dog, that's creepy. And I don't know why. <laughs> yeah. The way, just I, looking. It's like looking. I go, what is it doing? I'm scared well, of it. What was amazing was I, I was always fascinated by when they built, when they started building the set for the um, thing up at Stewart's near British Columbia. They used, um, they actually built it in an open plan where there was no snow. And then they actually allowed it, the snow to fall. So that scene is they built it. If you watch the documentary, they built it and then the snow came in and that's how they created right. the Antarctica oh, thing. Okay. Um, and it, it's, 
But that probably holds up that film. You oh, it's still the, it's yeah. it's it's one I of mean, the, even mo- the effects. It's wise, one of the most intellectual things. Okay, granted, the computer simulation in it does kind of. I mean, I I saw it in seventy mil at the Prince Charles, and again, people laughed at the computer simulation. But that's only partly because the computer technology at the time yeah, course, was there. Yeah. But that said, the actual makeup and gore effects, I think, for my money, are among the best. I mean, the scene with the where the head sort of the head, sev- yeah, where that's the head the and then the yeah. tongue <laughs> and then the t- that bit with the tongue actually sort of attaching itself and then it then it becomes that spider and then you have David Clennon saying you've, you've got, got to be, to be fucking <laughs> yeah. that sort of that that cups that that's the perfect thing yeah. for that because he just like you're one of the audience going, yeah. you've got to be fucking that's a real but the like, great thing on, is mate. is you have twelve great performances the performances yeah. of everybody in that cast everybody like even Donald Moffat and um, Richard Dysart and and especially Wilford Brimley who Wilford Brimley. Player, who goes yeah. who goes absolutely crazy and he's sort of you know and and you've got all the other cast members in there as well. And Kurt Russell, I think he holds the thing yeah. together because he he adopts that some really nice cynical stuff. And you've got Keith David, who is as um, Charles, who's who's very much hot headed and stuff. And then you have all these sequences where you know it really starts taking um, it starts taking shape, and the, the claustrophobia kicks in. Yeah, um, I think the mistake they made at the time was eight should have been released in the in the autumn. And it should have it because they were trying to make it like a summer blockbuster, right. like Alien, yeah, yeah, yeah. and it's not it's Alien. It's a totally yeah. different no. film. I heard that he, the, the the director made the studio pay for two weeks beforehand to get everybody together to just live together for two weeks. Um, well, just they to sort of have that sort of well, they wanted the speaking over each other and relaxing. Sort well, of thing. the funny thing is when they when they shot over at Stewart's in British Columbia, a lot of the locals were taking exceptions to the cast taking the women away. Because there used to be a few fights and stuff, and and I was reading an interview where you know because it would you know they because it was you know a, an all male cast, and of course Stuart was the, it was in the middle of nowhere, and so Carpenter said in an interview that um you know they, the the locals were getting really bad because the women, local women were taking the set things sort of thing. So that anyway, that's did that uh, wing any? Oh no, it got um, at the it time, didn't, didn't. But it, it's no. um it's it's I think it's it's success is down to the fact that it's now the and most. What con- are the, the the rules for the thing alien now? I can't remember. It can re- replicate on touch. The thing alien. It's yeah. The in the, well, the the thing is like a the metal. It doesn't do metal because from the earring thing of the second one, it can't. It missing earring. That's how she knows that he's not a. The second film, the, the remake version. Oh, the oh. prequel. He hasn't got the earring in or something, yeah. hasn't he? I'm trying to remember now, but so I can't uh, remember what the rules. Can it just whatever it t- it has to touch something? It has to be in the. It has to be alone with somebody in a room to physically assimilate it. So, for example, in I thought it had to touch it. Well, in in That's the T1, uh, I think you might be thinking T1000. No, no, I thought that, that was it because somebody said the Al station licks but, the yeah, guy at the start. He does, oh. but in the but that's a real subtle thing. But in I think we get the first sense with the dog. When the dog's in yeah. the cage with the other dog, and he's just sitting there like that, and all of a sudden the head splits. Right, off. yeah, it hasn't touched the dogs at that point. Yeah, yeah. Okay. but then you have Blair who says to, um, who says to the, um, who says to the dog handler, and says, you know, how long were you in the room with the dog? Right, I yeah. mean to say it was only put in there, and he was wandering around. So yeah. you kind of get a sense now that it it sort of becomes a really uncomfortable scene about them because they're you know because you suddenly realise well this is actually a a really thing that you know it's it's something within it's, it's a it's a bad thing it's a yeah. it's genuine it's like aids it's like yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. and i think carpenter picked on a, he said in the interviews that he said well actually it's representative of like 
you know, it could be representative of AIDS or all yeah. of the diseases. Yeah. And I think that's what people are uncomfortable about. Whereas if you look at alien, for example, it's a physical you alien, yourself you know, you know, yeah. and teeth and stuff like that. So that's my number three. Um, so my number two, and we're, it's a, Come on. it's another John Carpenter and it is the fog. Oh, really? The 1979 okay. version okay. of the fog, um, which I, again, I describe as a, um, as a nightcap film where whenever this is on TV late at night on one of the channels, I will happily switch it on. Right. So I have not seen the fog. Go for it. Ghost pirates. Okay. A town called Antonio, <laughs> a, a, town, super, call, a town called Antonio Bay is celebrating its hundredth birthday. Okay. And between 12 o'clock and one o'clock, um, things start happening. The town goes crazy. All of a sudden a fog bank starts appearing um and essentially there was a a hundred years ago a a clipper ship called the elizabeth dame collided on the shore and everybody died right drowned yeah so the legend goes that when the fog returns to antonio bay the the people happen so what then happens is is people turn up and jamie lee curtis tom atkins and charles cyphers they're celebrating it but there's a priest who um basically is reading a book, which is the journal of a former father Milan, who um, he reads out and said, apparently there's a thing. And it turns out that the, the actual birthday is not a celebration, but it's an honoring of murders. Okay. Right. So the fog just literally starts. Did you say Jamie Lee Curtis was in it? Yeah, she's okay, in it. Yeah. Right. So she's like a hitchhiker. Before um, Friday, Halloween. It was after Halloween. Okay. It was the film after Halloween. Right, okay. And essentially, it's just got some really funny. Mo- I mean, my favorite dialogue exchange in it is the um, is on the boat where the one of the boats on the sea grass, he goes, "She's got to be kidding." There's there's a DJ called Stevie Wayne. So Stevie Wayne saying, "You know, oh hey there, mate, he's to the sea grass." There's a fog bank on you. He goes, "That that woman, she's telling a lie. That's not a fog bank out there." And then a minute later, the fog bank appears. He goes, "Hey, there's a fog bank out there." <laughs> um, and then essentially. The, um, uh, the the Elizabeth Dane appears in the fog, and then all of some people are getting like hooks in, you know, in their thing and knived away. So every time the fog appears, people start happening, right. and then it, it sort of builds to a really great um, crescendo towards the end. And you know, fog shouldn't be scary, but it, it genuinely works in this movie. And that was remade as well, wasn't it? It was remade, okay. not as good. It was another film like When a Stranger Calls that just didn't work in two. Were they all trapped in a supermarket? No, that was the that was the, the um, oh. had a weird twist at the end. Yeah, where well, the guy the, shot somebody. Yeah, he killed that everyone. That was the mist. That was the mist. Oh. Yeah. No, the f- <laughs> the clouds slightly, slightly less. So, what um, from the fog? Just yeah. a few other things about this. Um, it's one of the most beautifully shot horror films of all time. Dean Cundey. Um, there's a beautiful shot in the film which I love, where Adrian Barbo, Stevie Stevie Wayne, her son is actually on the beach looking for stuff, and she, he picks up a piece of wood which is actually from the Dane, which is plays a significant part in the, the key thing. But there's a shot where it cuts to a shot of the house that they're in, and you see the, the reflections of the clouds on top of it, and it just, you know, the, the mist changes and stuff. And I think the wonderful color scheme in it and the, the cinematography, it, it's probably one of the most beautifully shot horror films of all time. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. What year was it? 1979. Any awards? No, probably won a few of the genre awards, but not too much. So we are, can I, uh, before we get to there, can I ask you a stupid question? Right. You've got to face one thing. 
right? The, the fog or the mist? Which one? You, which one's more dangerous? You've got to make it through the night. Is it acid I mist? Think the mist I think the mist probably with those bugs. The mist that you would go for the you would yeah. yeah. Well, you you the thing is you have the thing is you you have more. Well, I think they're both along the same lines because there's a scene in the mist which I did like where you know like you see the bugs. You know, you think the they're bugs, in. Yeah, that's they're it, yeah, bug, yeah. There are bugs in the far yeah. mist, and then all of a sudden you think, oh, they're just little things like that. And all of a sudden they go, they suddenly <laughs> turn out big, and they're huge. Oh. Um, so you'd prefer to face the fog, the mist, than the fog. Yeah, I'd have more chance in the fog. <laughs> <laughs> well, anyway, random question. So the big one. Okay, we well, I'm hoping the number one. E comes into this. <laughs> okay, well, to be honest Do with it, you, John. I don't think there is another film. I don't think there's any other choice than this one because be. it is the movie that for me started it off for me. Um, I was 13 years old when it first appeared on TV. 1978. Stick with it. No. I'm about to tell you. No, no, but I, I will reveal it in a second. Okay. And it's a movie that I was genuinely scared for years. I, I actually hid under the bedclothes and it is of course, Halloween. Oh, oh right. Okay. <laughs> I buggered that so, one. So, <laughs> um, so basically, the original. Jamie Lee Curtis. We're now, we are, yeah, yeah, I, I would safely say that I was, I was haunted for ages watching it. Really? Um, because it was just so real. I mean, it's it was the shadows and the music and the theme and um, those opening sequence. I mean, the very first sequence where the camera's panning around the house into the thing, you have the shots, but it's also the following sequence where Donald Pleasance and Nancy Stevens are on their way to pick up Michael Myers from the thing. And there's a really haunting shot where it says, here we are and the rain's pouring. And then you see the figures in the actual, you see the figures in the, in the walking around in the mental institution outside. But then all of a sudden it cuts to the daylight in Halloween. And then, of course, then, of course, there's that sequence where Jamie Lee Curtis, PJ Souls, and Nancy Loomis are walking down the street. And then, literally, you see Michael Myers standing, and then he walks just to the left into the bush. But there's, there's just scenes where every single time the shape appears, it's so weird. Like, even when they, when, when he, when, when Laurie Strode walks with Tommy Doyle to the house, and, and actually, he's going, she's going, you see the, the viewpoint of, a walking towards the house and literally you see this and you hear this breathing also he suddenly leaps in there and then there's that dong. the the music and the sound design is uh, i yeah. think really makes that and then there's things like um you know there's the scene where you know laurie strode's in the class and she she actually sees him outside the sees him outside the thing with the car and stuff there's the you know there's there's other elements in it i mean there's the scene where just after um, Linda's boyfriend's killed and he's wearing the sheet with the glasses. That's a haunting moment. It actually was the cover of um, John McCarty's Splatter movies, which was the first horror film book I ever read. What was the cover? It's called um, Splatter Movies Breaking the Last Taboo. If you ever get a chance, try and seek this out on Amazon. It's a great book because it was the first book that introduced me to people about like Romero and Herschel Gordon Lewis. Herschel Gordon Lewis was the godfather of Gore. It's a bio book. It's a, it's okay. a, like, it's a series of chapters about the whole history of it. it was everything leading up to 1982. Um, and I, one of the first editions, but it had interviews with George A. Romero and Tom Savini and Herschel Gordon Lewis. It had, um, you know, there was, there was even a interesting enough. Um, there wasn't even a chapter on the wild bunch. Yeah. you know and you know the whole extreme violence at the end of it yeah. 
Um, but no, I, I, I loved it for, you know, I, I just remember it was one of those, those rites of passage movies. It was like, you know, kids want, you know, when you, you had, to, you had to stay up and watch a film on a Friday. And what was amusing was I, it was on TV on a Friday and I, I thought, oh great, I'm going to go into school and I'm going to see this movie. I'm going to be really cool with the kids. ITV. ITV late yeah. nights. It was, it was on a, it was actually a season of horror films on, oh, yeah. on ITV when I saw it. And there was things like the uncanny, for example, about the three films about the cats. There was a, there was a, there's, um, there's movies. It's a film called the uncanny. It's a horror film and it's about cats as the horrible thing. So there was Peter Cushing was in it and Ray Milland played the, with like, they were like, he was a novelist and he was trying to get scary stories about cats. So that was one of the other films that was what, on the there. Cats kill people. Yeah. Karem, you listening to this? The horror There's film about cats. The very first, okay. The first, ta- the first <laughs> tale in this film, the first tale in this film is basically, um, there's two workers with this old lady and she has a whole load of cats. And what it is, they want to get this will from this safe in there. So, the trouble is, is the cats sort of know what they're doing because they try and strand, they kill the, they kill the old lady, but then the cats are all kind of going to, so you see cats scratching the thing. It's, it's quite fun actually. And then there's a second one, which is black magic where, um, I think this kid brings his, brings her cat to there. And then the, and then this jealous, um, cousin sort of, um, sort of takes a notice and then, Basically, the jealous cousin gets put in like a black, a black magic star, and she shrinks, and then the cat crushes her. <laughs> oh, Jesus Christ! Right? Yeah, it's it's quite good. It was uh, a Canadian film, anyway. So, uh, okay. Um, but no, it, I loved it for its. Um, you know, I, I think even the ending where you know he's literally walking straight towards the house, and there's those repeat things, those repeat where he comes back from the dead three or yeah. four times. Um, but of course it's, it's sort of held together by the wonderful performance of Donald Pleasance as Sam Lonis, who was named after one of the characters in Psycho. Oh. He, John Gavin's character. Did, um, how old was Jamie uh, Lee Curtis when this, when she this? was about 19, yeah, I she think. Was so young. Any awards? Um, she, what they won some of the, um, they won some of the, like the genre awards, but didn't win, you know, it didn't. Again, all. never taken seriously the horror film. Well, this this was a different time. I mean, it's it's a different time now. Right. So those are my top ten. Yeah. So uh, um, so what happened to The Exorcist? What happened? Well, John, I was relying you, on you. Yeah. Mate. Well, if you if you wait one second, uh, um, remember mentions. I was thinking a race ahead. Also, like, well, here is you saying okay. Eraser, so oh, yeah. Yeah, okay. So we're gonna. I've already talked about one of these, but I'm gonna start. These are the list of the films that almost made it. How many have you got? Two, three, four, five, six, seven. All right, we'll eight. have to rattle. Go on. <laughs> well, I'm, but trust me. Right, um, let's go. Number one. Oh, we, no, the, mentions. these are not in any particular order, right, but okay. I'm just going to go yeah. for it. Okay, so the first one is the original Nightmare on Elm Street. Yeah. Okay. Uh, David okay. Freddy Krueger. Yeah. Um, really great idea about um, somebody haunting teens in their sleep, a child molester, and then killing them in reality. Fantastic scares. Um, the killing of Tina, Tina Moore, the, you know, Amanda, Witt, Amanda Wiss, the, the original thing where she's sort of on the bed and she falls over. Yeah. yeah. Um, who plays, um, Freddy Krueger again? Um, Robert Englund. Robert Englund. So, yeah. so, I mean, basically it's, um, it's just a shame that it was a little too parodied with the exception of New Nightmare, which I think is a really great 
re-imaging where Wes Craven and Heather Langenkamp who were in the original film actually play themselves and it's about the Freddy Krueger haunting them in real life. Yeah. Okay, yeah. It's a nice idea. Uh. Um, I've got to, of course, mention Psycho, which is, um, you know, for me, I, I think we, we can't have Halloween without Psycho because that inspired it. Um, I've already talked about Texas Chainsaw Massacre. What year was Psycho? 1960. Um, I've already talked it it was black and white wasn't it yeah Yeah. but was it made because it had to be black and white did they choose to be black and white no um, Hitchcock basically couldn't get financed by Universal so he he used his TV crew from Alfred Hitchcock Presents and then made it by his own production and then actually chose to shoot it in black and white Um, and I think it works really effectively I mean they used um, I think it was chocolate sauce for the blood (laughs) well it just goes to show that I think the the colour remake they did the Gus Van Sant well that was shot shot. for shot yeah but that in colour didn't work it didn't work that didn't work but it was unnecessary again Um, yeah it was unnecessary okay so moving on just briefly Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2 I've already Mm -hmm. mentioned underrated cult sequel um, fantastic Um, going on to next um, Final Destination which yeah which um, Mm. which I think was fantastic Um, a bit like a Twilight Zone episode but I love the fact that it it had um, you know that that premonition was quite scary and then it it sort of opened up and then you had all these wonderful i mean the shower killing was quite good and i i think also the bus i haven't seen it so i don't know what's okay the, so the shower the, scene the, the, prem, the premise of this one is is um a group of students are flying to paris and one of the kids teenagers has a premonition about the plane blowing up and crashing right so he wakes up and then has a fight with one of the other students, and then they're actually taken off the plane, and then the plane genuinely does explode. Right. And then, of course, there's this mystery about them cheating death and stuff, but then all of a sudden, the people who survived the flight start to die one by one. Right, okay, like they should so, have been dead. Yeah, okay. so what it is is there's a, you know, there, there are a lot of creative deaths, so in a way, it's kind of been inspired by the Omen, but it works really, really well. I mean, Final Destination 2, 3, 4, and 5 are all... Um, so Final Destination 2 is about a, um, a traffic crash so they're all independent films so there's no storyline running throughout no, they have, they're different concepts so the right. second one's about a traffic accident the third one's about a roller coaster the fourth one's about a, a racing car track and the fifth one's about a bridge. Oh, there's always one big thing where yeah. people should have died but yeah. didn't. Yeah. So what's, I mean, spoiler alert, but what happens at the first one? What's the explanation? Is it a, a, a possession or something it's like? just that god the devil the, you, death catches devil. up death catches oh, up it's like fate or the, yeah. Yeah. So, the universe but, but it but it's kind of but for me it's a real beer and curry movie it works really well okay. in that case um and then moving on um tucker and dale versus evil okay yeah i've only just heard about this recently and i liked it the, the, the theme of it the concept is yeah, okay great. so great idea, so the yeah. idea is this subverts the whole idea of people teens going to the woods yeah. and falling foul of hillbillies yeah. the difference with this one is that the hillbillies are the good guys yeah. and the teens are the bad guys so it's pla- even though the bad stuff happens to the yeah, teens but it's just a lot of it's by accident but what, yeah. but, but what happens is is one of the girls one of the girls has an accident in a boat and they take <laughs> her back to the cabin and then the teens seem to think that she's been yeah, being antagonized and tortured like you've experienced torture. so there's a there's a sequence where one of them picks up a chainsaw and actually is they're what it is they're trying to do up their cabin so they're just normal people going <laughs> off to do their cabin so 
the first inkling that something really funny is happening is so, so he uses the chainsaw in the log, but there's a beehive in the actual thing. So the beehive suddenly explodes, and all of a sudden, like chainsaw, he's wagging his thing around. He's suddenly screaming, yeah. waving chainsaw around, covered but the, in bees. But the best moment, bar none, and it's the one that is the money moment, is where the girl and Tucker and Dale are sort of digging something, and they think he's digging a grave. Tucker and Dale, the hillbillies. Yeah, the hillbillies. So yeah. they're digging it. So, of course, they've got a wood chipper. So all of a sudden, one of the guys is come around. He, he he's going after Tucker. All of a sudden, he ducks. He leaps over and ends up headfirst into the wood chipper. <laughs> so of course that that he's trying to push. He's trying to pull the thing out, and then, and it's like he pulls out, and and then suddenly a cop turns up, and he goes, "Oh, you've ruined the bloody wood chipper." But it, it's just, and it and it was, it really was one of my. It's for my money, my favorite film at Fright Fest, and I remember going to see it when it was at Fright Fest, and I think it it prompted more reaction than anything. It's, Who? Um, it was a very original story. Who was the uh, directors for it? I don't. I'm trying to remember now. But it. What have they gone on to do? I think that was their main one. Yeah, anyway. that was it. Really? But it was, but it was a fun movie that kind of was fun scares and fun horror yeah, yeah, and it yeah. and the gore effects were great i mean the wood chipper sequence is just hilarious <laughs> but then there's you as the story goes on i mean there's one sequence where one of the teens that the, the girl who's kidnapped she's actually like a psych psychology major and they're trying to have like a psychological evaluation <laughs> to sort of go through well we're gonna have a nice chat here um and it's it's fun for that reason so it it subverts the whole expectation of what horror is anyway so um that's another of them um i am going to mention the exorcist come on good stuff that's i it. had to mention it this is why i said to you that i was gonna the, the honorable mentions list there um i'm going to include it because was it 74 73 70, oh, 73 um for me it's kind of I don't think it has the impact for me as it used to. I think it's right. more of a psychological yeah, film. Yeah, and I think it, yeah. because the different stories, like I think there are three stories in it. There's one, there's the story of Father Merrin, the exorcist of the yeah. title, who actually has come back to face Pazuzu, like the whole sequence in Iraq. There's Chris and Reagan McNeil, the possessed kid. And then there's Father Karras, who's the troubled thing. But I like it for its, um, I like it for its, psychological and theoretical stuff in there the fact that it plays it for real it plays it straight um, doesn't it and i li i like the fact that um the physicality and some of the amazing effects done by dick smith i think it's a lesson to any of the modern yeah. filmmakers that you know you need to have more physical stuff because it's Was more it filmed in the fridge to get the steam um, the... yeah there's there's a lot of interesting things in there i mean i heard the um the, a lot of people who passed out watching it was from the blood scene from in the hospital because yeah. people had reacted to the blood because he got people to do the stuff with her. Yeah. I mean, that, I mean, that's, medical well, that scene where the scene where they actually put the, where the, where Reagan is in doing for tests. I mean, that scene is quite bad where they, they stick the thing in yeah. there and then you see the blood spurting yeah, out. Yeah. But that was the intention of William Freakin. He wanted to make it more yeah. like a real life yeah. horror film. So, um, and I mean, things like tubular, tubular bells. I mean, the, the oh, head turning yeah. sequence, um i mean i i i like it as a movie i mean the sequel the exorcist 2 i think was very i mean i, I the only thing that comes out of watching exorcist 2 is the locusts uh the uh the and the nino morricone score yeah. as well and then exorcist 3 which is kind of um which is not a bad movie i mean the um i, I mean, like it, exorcist it's, 3 it's we it was based on legion the it, was, it wasn't a, a, an exorcist, I think. It was something 
different. Was no, it, it was right? it was The Exorcist three, and Father Karras is the devil in there. I haven't seen it for ages, but it's um. And then there was, of course, um, two. But who who wrote Legion then? William Peter Blatty. Oh, so it's okay. okay. And then there were, of course, two prequels. There was Dominion prequel to The Exorcist, yeah, which was um, I think good? Stellan Skarsgård. It was a, they were kind of the early days of Father Merrin. Okay, so that's that one. Um, I'm going to include Invasion of the Body Snatchers, 1978, the Philip Kaufman film, which is uh, the is that, second version. Is that with Donald Sutherland? Donald Sutherland, Brooke Adams, yeah, which is again um, is a, one of the few remakes of a 1950s film that actually is a match for the original. I actually saw recently the, um, the 1993 version, Abel Ferrara's version, Body Snatchers, yeah. which had Gabrielle Anwar, who was the girl who tangled with, um, with Al Pacino in there. And oh, the yeah. difference is they used um, they used like military thing, but it was it captured in good way. wasn't It wasn't terrible that one. It was okay, but the seventy eight was, was yeah. yeah. But I but I liked it because it kind of reflected the Watergate paranoia, and I liked the um, and I I liked the idea, liked the thing. It was a very simple, I guess, simple thing of the plants, and then you know the plants sort of are like spores, and he, and at the very beginning, there's a teacher who sort of goes, go and take these flowers and take them home to your parents. Oh. <laughs> and then it, it just captures it in such a way. I mean, there's, you know, Kevin McCarthy, who was the original hero in the original film, he says, oh, you're next, and he gets run over briefly. And then Don Siegel, who's the director, he played a taxi driver in it. But it's, again, I, I love the atmosphere, very, very well put together, you know, the, the light and shadow and the dark and stuff, and... Um, <gasps> now, at the end, that final image yeah, is yeah. haunting. Yeah, to be honest, it, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, um, so that's 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 another one. Now, moving on, I've got to include the Wicker Man, the original version. Okay. Yeah, I'm surprised that wasn't in the Forget, yeah. forget the Nicolas <laughs> really, Cage yeah. version. Um, this one, when I first saw it, it didn't quite. I was, I didn't quite get it. But then, as time's gone on, when I watch it now, I mean, if reading it differently, I mean, the whole thing about this kind of game that they play with Sergeant Howie, Deadwood Woodward's character, who goes off to Summer Isle to investigate the disappearance of a girl. It's it's just one of those um, things where it does get under your skin because you have Brit Etligan and then the naked orgy and the thing. And it just and it's just so bizarre. And you have like everybody wearing the um, you know the bizarre costumes and then it builds that really interesting kind of payoff at the end. I've just realized that's a real knockoff from uh, midsummer like the recent one oh the, the nude scene the dressing up the well effectively midsummer was effectively midsummer is you know when you see the post that was the thing about midsummer you know it was people homage the wicker man for that reason oh, yeah. okay. um i, I, I mean, saw the trailer for that and i just thought oh that's the wicker man <laughs> and like i was like i don't need to see that anymore because i've seen you the wicker man no, no. It, gonna just me. sidetrack because the wicker man actually influenced um a TV series that scared the living crap out of me. I think I might have mentioned it before. Children of the Stones oh, from 1977. I was eight years old when that was on TV and I watched about two episodes and literally had nightmares. <laughs> and I finally got round to watching it recently. And I, I was trying to understand what it was about the actual thing that scared me because there's a, there's a picture on the wall and there's a salamander in the corner and the fire and the image really sort of struck me. And I remember... <laughs> Going to bed that night after the second second episode, and I was literally, I was literally, uh, uh, mom, help me, help me. And then my mom there said, "Right, you're not watching Children of Stones." <laughs> but I, I mean, I, I, it took me about thirty years to watch it again because I, I, I hadn't 
because I never got to the end of it, but it was also the kind of eerie vocal choral music. Right. Yeah, Again, yeah. there's there's an odd tone and there's something just off. Off yeah. the yeah. whole yeah. thing. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, I mean, even at the very beginning, I watched the closed sequence where there's a rock in the middle of the road and there's a woman sort of, it transforms into woman with the very first thing. And it featured like Gareth Thomas from Blake Seven. Because he was in it, he played um, the professor. Oh, the yeah. yeah. The tone's been slightly off. That was in Midsummer as well. I just remembered, yeah. like they do the tone, but it's just slightly out. Of, again, like again, it's you go somewhere, every, something's a bit weird, odd, yeah. <laughs> and you go, "Oh, what's going on around here?" And then you sort of investigate, and then something dreadful happens. Yeah. Okay, so I'm gonna. I've mentioned this next. I'm gonna sort of bring the next two together um, because they're both similar and they came around at the same time. I'm gonna bring together the Howling and the American Werewolf in London. Oh, right. Okay. Same time. Which one? American Werewolf first? They were about the same time. I mean, American, I mean, American Werewolf, um, I think, came out just before The Howling. But the American Werewolf for me is like, what I loved about it was that it was one of these American movies where Americans turned up and it actually kept the, the you know, the, the groundedness of the Englishness. So yeah, when they the go Boston to the Yorkshire that. Moors and stuff. Um but I love it not just for the transformation, but also for that wonderful nightmare that David Norton has where he's in, he's in the house and all of a sudden like they're watching the Muppet show and then they open the door and these neo-Nazis come and shoot that. everything. Yeah, yeah, I forgot about that. And it's just like, it, it scared me the first time around. But I love the, um, but I mean the transformation because, of, because it was done in camera and Rick Baker's thing. Fantastic. And it, it's just because you, like with Poltergeist, and this is where I feel it's diff- It's much harder now to sort of, because you have access to CGI now, it's very difficult to do physical in-camera stuff anyway. Um, it's difficult to know, well, how do you do the tricks? This is why, going back to what we're talking about, well, why the films of the 70s are better is because, um, or with the 80s, because the visual effects are so well physical and put together. So with things like Halloween, The Fog, The Thing... Um, Friday the 13th they were all physical effects the Evil Dead was homemade visual effects oh really and it's a testament because there's a real magic to that transformation sequence because again it's certain cuts but you're also seeing the general shot as well because you're seeing David Norton on the ground and you're seeing and he's screaming and then all of a sudden it cuts to the certain shots like the face going out yeah. and stuff like that so it, it's it's such a great, and it's just a. What music's playing when that's happening? It's very. It's, it's not. It doesn't fit with it. It does. It's quite an is upbeat. Is it Bad song. Moon Rising or? Oh, Blue Moon. No, no, Blue Moon's at the end. But is Bad Moon Rising happens at the Bad Moon Rising? No, Bad Moon Rising's actually. I know Moon Dance plays when David Norton, Jenny Agatha are actually getting it on in the shower. No. I think it's it's something like Bad Moon Rising or something. I'll have to okay. watch it again. Um, so yeah um, so moving on to the howling what's great about this one is all the characters are played by the directors of all the characters names are based on the werewolf directors of the 30s and 40s oh, really? <laughs> um, and again Rob Bartine who did the effects on the thing this was again if you watch the transformation in this film um, the whole story is is Dee Wallace who was the mother in E.T. she's a reporter and she's trying to track a sex killer but then she realizes that um, they go to this um country retreat where they're all werewolves and is it, it a comedy or is it it's comedy horror, horror. i mean oh, patrick mcnee is actually one of patrick mcnee is a is a re, 
he's like a um I think he's a he's an expert on lycanthropy. Lycanthropy. Yeah. Like yeah. So yeah. Um so that was those are two there. Now I'm going to incorporate David Cronenberg now. Um and I'm going to include I'm going to include three of his movies. Okay. Um in no particular order, Scanners, Rabid and Dead Ringers. I know the first two, I don't remember the third one. Dead Ringers was Jeremy Irons playing twins, dual roles. No. And he plays Beverly and Elliot Mansell, who are gynecologists. Okay. And they fall in love with Genevieve Bougeold, who's got like a weird kind of um, cervix. And then <laughs> one of them falls in love, and then there's a bit of a battle between them and stuff. But it's quite a haunting thing, because they use a very radical um, gynecology stuff. And there's a nightmare scene where they pick up like all these, you know, they've created these really weird instruments tools which, yeah. tools which are like sir and there's a scene on where one of them goes a bit crazy and gets becomes a bit of an addict so i saw it in 1989 at the Odeon lesser square on on opening january 1989 it's just one of those genuinely haunting films where you just it just gets into you right from the get-go and it's just genuinely haunting because um jeremy irons is absolutely excellent as the in the twin roles it was originally going to call it was based on a book called twins and was originally going to be that, but it came out the same time as the Arnold Schwarzenegger <laughs> oh, really? yeah. film. So they changed it to Dead Ringers, and David Cronenberg wrote it. Um, Scanners is ESP, um, famous for the head explosion. Oh, yeah, head explosion. I, I can yeah. remember. Yeah, and Dick Smith, who did the Dick Smith, who did the effects on The Exorcist, he actually was part of the team mm. for um, there, and he created. There's a climax where they use a lot of physical effects, where Michael Ironside and Stephen Lack are battling. And you see some really interesting makeup effects, okay. like, you know, and the veins popping, veins popping and stuff. But the head exploding is actually the thing that makes it because, yeah. um, you know, and and as I understand it, Gary Zeller, who was one of the effects people, um, he was actually. So if you if you physically look at this, how it worked was um, the actor who was playing it, they put the head on the table, and they had a swat. Somebody was Gary Zeller was actually sort of behind the table. Yeah, using a SWAT team shotgun. Oh, right. And then really? literally when they did that, they sh he, he actually shot like that. And yeah. then literally the whole thing exploded. So when you watch the sequence, that's how they did it. So it was it was done off shot. <laughs> and I think they they trimmed the shots before the release of the film where the head, the body flopped forward. But it's a wonderful, you know, it's, it's strange enough, somebody described this as a bit like a James Bond film. You know, like they, because because in a way, what it is, Stephen Lack is Cameron Vale, who's a, who's basically a vagrant, and he's recruited by um, Patrick McGoon, who plays Doctor Paul Ruth, into this company called Common Amalgamate, and they're all sort of wanting to get evidence against. There's 239 of these people called Scanners who are like using powers and right, they yeah, exploded. Yeah. So he wants um, Cameron Vale to infiltrate the organization organization to sort of get Revok. But there's kind of a um, interesting subplot about the film, and it's it's got an interesting thing about there's a drug that they have called ephemeral, which is actually um, is basically meant to be a pregnancy drug, but it has side effects, and basically they they sort of give people the drug. It's for pregnant women, but it turns out that it actually creates scanners. Oh right, so. Cronenberg actually had a really clever thing. It used a very medical using because he's he had a medical background, and I think it's a fantastic movie for that reason. But it's 
And actually, it has a score by Howard Shaw. Because Howard Shaw, of course, went on to do Lord of the Rings. These were so, oh, he, he was his early one of his early collaborations was with David Cronenberg. So from the Brood onwards, he actually did the thing there. Yeah. Um, so that's that one. Um, I've got to include Rabid, the 1977 version. Um, I recently saw this year at Fright Fest the Soska Sisters remake of Rabid, which is pretty good. Um, is this like a zombies-esque sort of thing? They get um, bitten and spread in the... No, what it is is Marilyn Chambers, who was the Ivory Snow girl and a porn star in the 70s, um, it was her first dramatic role. So she plays Rose, who is um, the victim of a motorcycle accident. And the only place she can be taken to is a plastic surgery clinic. So there's a guy called Dr. Dan Kelloyd who has a radical plastic surgery thing. So he uses skin grafts in the arms. Yeah. Unfortunately, um, it has a side effects where it, there's like a spike in the in the pit, right? And basically, she sort of it's like a, like a vampire thing. So what it is is she starts spreading rabies oh. in Montreal, and then basically the whole place becomes infected. Right, okay. um, and it's a fun one because it's it's a bit like one of the if you think of things like Twenty Eight Days Later and, and yeah, that yeah. kind of saga, that's good anyway. So. That's another one. Um, it wouldn't be a horror list of mine and honorable mentions without at least the mention of one Italian horror film. And in this case, it is The Beyond, Lucio Fulci's 1981 film. What's this now? Which one is that? The Seven Doors of Death, the New Orleans Hotel. Oh. So the, in a nutshell, in 1927, there is a, um, there's a warlock called Schweik who paints pictures in this New Orleans hotel. And he says... This hotel's on the seven doors of death and they torture him with acid and stuff. Anyway, cut to 1981. A woman played by Catherine McCall inherits the hotel and weird things happen. So the basement sort of, you know, people from the past start happening and then the local hospital starts having zombies and stuff like that. Don't loads of people's faces get melted with acid? Yes. Yes. Uh, yeah. But it also has, if you want to talk about a wonderful um, exploding head effect, there's a, there's a scene involving a girl, a young girl, and Gianetti Di Rossi, who is the pioneering um, Italian makeup effects, there's a shot of him, there's a shot of a, woman, a girl's head being blown off and you literally see the whole thing like, you know, she literally the half the head's literally sort of gone it's a wonderful shot but it's a climactic thing in the hospital so um that's one that i had to include um i'm going to include henry portrait of a serial killer the original 1985 film which john mcnaughton did which really was the first ever serial modern serial killer film um uh, what's his what's the guy's michael name? rocker yeah michael rocker yeah now, I saw this um, at the Scala Cinema in 1990. It was uncut. It was a first run. Scala did a lot of first run stuff. And it's actually an extraordinary achievement. It's a low-budget movie um, right from the get-go with the mon images of dead women and a soundtrack of dead women. But it's, it's notable for two sequences. The first one is the killing of a TV repairman because, um, in a nutshell, Henry turns up at this brother and sister's house played by Tracy Arnold and Tom Towles and Otis, Otis and Becky. And Tom Towles basically is sort of sweet talked with um, Henry to sort of go on, on the rampage and go on a, a killing run. So they go to a um, TV sh sales, like an independent TV thing and decide they want to buy a TV, but they only have 50 bucks. 
So they wanted, they could only get a black and white TV, but they wanted a color. So of course, this is, they stabbed, they stabbed the, I shouldn't be laughing, but they, they stabbed purse, they stabbed the TV repairman, and then they, sh- they throw a TV on top of him. And then, and, and Henry says, oh, let's plug it in. And like, there's a moment like that anyway. But then they nick, um, but then they nick a video recorder and then they videotape one of their acts. It's, it will make you think twice about what you're watching, but it, but when you think of in the context of films like Silence of the Lambs, California, you know, it, it actually happened five years before, about five years before Silence of the Lambs came out when Thomas Harris stuff was going on. I mean, it was languishing in, in distribution hell for a while because it was unrated in the States. It was only when in 1989, 1990, when the local festivals were starting to pick up okay, on it. Yeah. And then it built, and then we got it in 91, 91, 92. Um, so that's that one. Um, I'm going to include a double bill now, um, which is two films from 1981, which is The Fun House and My Bloody Valentine. Oh, seen either okay so um this was a one of the very last double bills in the uk it was released um log in in a double bill um and it's had the tagline pay to get in pray to get out the most terrifying three hours of your life <laughs> so the fun house is based on a novel in part by dean r Kuntz, who was who published under the pseudonym of owen west and it's basically four teenagers who get locked in a fun house and have to fight to survive um, My Bloody Valentine is um, a Canadian film that actually capitalizes on the Halloween, post-Halloween slasher thing, which was um, basically there was an accident in a mine and people with a gas mask and then basically the gas the gas person, the ga- guy, the killer in the gas mask sort of comes back and starts killing people on Valentine's Day. The, the town is called Valentine's Bluffs. Um if you get a chance, watch the ninety, the twenty ten remake in three D, which is brilliant in three D. Some re- that's fantastic. It's you know, and it's more or less the same thing anyway. Um, so those are those two. Um, I'm going to bring up um, Trick or Treat from two thousand and seven. Oh, yeah, yeah. um, this was, for my money, the best Halloween film since Halloween. It's oh, an yeah. anthology of four tales, a bit like Creep Show, mm. but it's it's mercifully short, but it's wonderful because it encompasses everything about you know the jack o' lanterns and werewolves and it's you know weirdness in a small town. Brian Cox is in it. Okay, love bit of Brian Cox. Um, yeah. And it's and the the thing about it is we couldn't understand why this film didn't get a theatrical release it was brian singer produced it and it was it got a screening at fright fest and everybody raved about it it was wonderful to see it on the big screen so um that was another one um i've got to talk about the greatest tv horror movie ever made and that is toby hooper's superior adaptation of salem's lot the 1979 version with david soul um this is a landmark film this is actually a landmark film in horror tv history um because it is without question it is a genuine classic which actually works better as a film than it does as a book okay a lot more in there i mean kurt barlow the actual scene with the kid floating to the window and tapping on it before he gets (laughs) his friend is there um it's got a great cast with david soul luez Jeffrey Lewis, who's the father of Juliet Lewis. It's got um, George DeZunder. Um, I They did a theatrical version 
for about a two-hour theatrical version, which I did see, but it actually cut out a lot of the emphasis on some of the subplots, which didn't work in the theatrical version. The three-hour version, the original version, is a fantastic. Um, Toby Hooper directed it, but it's just fantastic. Really vampires in a small town, and I loved it for that reason. Nice, yeah. Okay, um, I'm going to bring a documentary into the list now, a thing called Terror in the Isles. Um, this was a fun documentary from 1984 starring Donald Pleasance and Nancy Allen, which is an excuse to watch a lot of classic clips. Um, I've got a Blu-ray American copy of Halloween 2, and it appears as an extra. It's a 90-minute documentary. And essentially, Donald Pleasance and Nancy Allen are in a thing saying, well, you know, when the lights go down in the theater... And it shows clips everything from The Shining through to, um, through to, um, you know, like Halloween and Texas Chainsaw. So it's an anthology in all four films. It's, it's just a fun documentary. Um, and I, I just had to mention that one there anyway. Right, we've got one more then, John. We've got to wrap up. So okay. choose one. Okay, so what shall I pick? What shall I pick out of them? Um, I'll just give you a – I'm, I'm going to just summarize it pick one blog okay. you know the others that were on the list we, we didn't have a time to this the blob 1988 the, last blob, the, the remake one. of the blob last house and left 1972 what keeps you alive 2018 and the and i've got to mention that halloween secret from last year right um but that was supposed ha- to be quite good actually it's i liked yeah. it yeah. um but the one that i will mention in this honorable mentions is day of the dead 1985 i was wondering if you were going to do a, a dead so that day, to me day, is yeah? that to me is my favourite of the Romero films. It's the supermarket. No, it's the um, military day? bunker. That's the bunker. The one. military bunker. Oh right, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, oh, I, I just think it. Think it I, I liked it for that reason because it was underground, and I, I liked it because the claustrophobia, and I like Bob when he shoots um, Joseph. <laughs> and and it's truly grotesque as well. I mean, yeah. it really is. I mean, the, some the, of the didn't he, he he wanted to do a really big film about zombies and they cut the budget so he had yeah. to do it enclosed but it also features one of my favorite lines from the the helicopter the black helipot the party goes goes i'm staying here and i'll even keep the motor running but the first sign of trouble if i go around if i if i see any trouble and you're not on well you're gonna have a really bad afternoon <laughs> <laughs> so um so yeah so that's just um a rough idea um again i apologize if i've missed something off there but i i just felt no, again these run. were this to me was probably as comprehensive a um a list that i could have done that that's is there any that you would have gone for charles that we missed uh, out there? I, I dawn of the dead is, is yeah. my personal well i'm thinking uh, of doing a zombie podcast so i thought well okay. let's hold that let's hold that there dawn uh maybe videodrome which is seen that one. very odd film, <laughs> very oh, okay. disturbing. I saw that when I was too young. I saw that when I was about 10 or 11. Oh. I loved it and watched it loads. And it's all about basically this guy going slightly mad from watching like a, a snuff TV show. Yeah. Oh, oh, bloody hell. Was it, that in the 80s? Yeah. Yes, yeah, another oh, so it's 80s. Not it was um, Debbie yeah. Harry. I mean, the, the scene about it is Debbie Harry has, um, she, there's a scene where she puts out a cigarette on her breast. Oh, yeah. Oh, Jesus. Um, but funny enough, again, going back to what we were talking about earlier on, cannibal holocaust it's like again talking about the impact of cable tv it kind of touches on when you look at funny enough now with freeview and stuff it's like it's about somebody going like as like it like he says it, it's um it's got some great visual effects by brick baker i think the scene the, the other thing is there's a scene where he sticks the you know like cronenberg did that bodily horror stuff and then there's that scene where the gun comes through the television 
Oh. And he puts his head in the TV and yeah. stuff. He literally has like sex okay. with the television. Oh, Jesus. Yeah. It's pretty weird. Yeah. Right. Well, that was their Halloween <laughs> movie podcast. Uh, John, I don't know where you keep all that knowledge, but mm. keep it keep it going, mate. Definitely. Yeah. Um, enjoy that one. Yeah, no, I had yeah, good fun. Yeah. yeah, thank you very much. All right, well, uh, thank you very much. We'll be seeing you again, John. We'll, uh, thank we'll you have very to much. Yep. About that, but thank Cheers. you very much. Thank Cheers. You. Bye bye. All right. Bye bye, everyone. Bye. Cheers. Bye. Oh